Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, welcome to this week's episode of Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. I'm John, and I'm with Griselda, and we're both culture editors at FT Weekend. Following the downfall of arch-provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos, this week we'll be discussing the dark world of online trolls. Have they finally usurped the internet? And what can we do to get it back? And later on, we'll hear from one of the rising stars of the fashion world, Molly Goddard. She came into the studio fresh from London Fashion Week to talk about her show at Tate Modern, where she transformed the runway into a dinner party featuring baguettes and butter and red wine. I like to think of myself as a virtuous troll, you know, I'm doing God's work. This idea that celebrities are these fragile wallflowers? Give me a break. I'm sorry for being popular, but I am not responsible for what 350,000 people on the internet say. So everyone who's been reading the internet in the past week will know about Milo Yiannopoulos and his great fall from grace. He's the king of online trolls. Um, But he's recently lost a book deal, a very lucrative book deal from Simon & Schuster. He's also had to resign as an editor at Breitbart News. And of course, the reason for this were his comments about paedophilia from an old podcast, which have resurfaced. Everyone's pretty fed up with his far-right, racist, misogynistic views. But there are also good trolls. There can be funny trolls, a lot of comments online under articles, a lot of Twitter comments, Facebook comments, Instagram comments are brilliant. So today we're going to kind of think about the limits of acceptability online, whether we've gone too far down the kind of troll route. And whether it's a kind of place where satire and comedy exists as well. It's a way that kind of journalists are held to account, people are sort of poked fun at, and it can be quite a useful tool as well as a hateful one. So our guests this week are Isabella Kaminska, our colleague at the FT, and she works for Alphaville, which is the FT's finance blog. And also with us is Nimrod Kamer, who Vice magazine called their expert resident troll, but he'd probably prefer to be known as a satirist. Izzy and Nimrod, thanks very much for joining us. I wanted to start with a big question. The internet seems to have kind of changed its character over the years, over its short lifespan and gone from something quite utopian to something possibly a bit more dystopian. Izzy, do you think things have got worse and are we losing the internet to the trolls? So I would disagree. I think the internet has always had this dimension to it. It's just that with scale, things become more obvious. From my own experience, um, FT Alphaville was obviously one of the first sort of commenter-engaged services at the FT. So we were a front-runner and having to deal with these abusive comments, etc., etc. So you always had a kind of community of users who would be part of Alphaville. Absolutely. And we noticed very early on that there was always a certain percentage of people who were just out to annoy you or just disagree for the sake of disagreeing. And... You know, I would split this category into two. There are what I would call virtuous trolls who are just, you know, 
doing it to get a reaction. And, and I, I have no problem with those guys. And then there are sort of the more unhinged element. But I think with our, in our experience, we've always found that you have to take a strong line and you set the sort of boundaries that are acceptable on your site. And uh, people actually love it. And I think it's a good point you make that trolls are nothing new. Like even definitions on the Urban Dictionary go back to the early 2000s. And there are hundreds of them now. One of my favourite is um, being a prick on the internet because you can. You know, we're not dealing with anything new here. I guess we're just perhaps reaching a tipping point where people are really starting to think about this is a proper, proper serious issue. Yeah, trolls are getting so powerful. They control the fake stream media. They control Amazon comments, uh, books, reviews. They control Reddit. They control Wikipedia, obviously, more and more. I once went to Kanye West and I told him I edited your Wikipedia with many falsehoods. Would you theoretically willing to pay me to fix your Wikipedia? <laughs> Kanye West, it's on YouTube. He said, yes, pe people are anxious what it says about them, celebs and otherwise. Nimrod, Izzy was talking about this idea of boundaries. How do you feel about boundaries as someone who kind of um, has fun with this kind of thing, with editing people's mm -hmm. Wikipedia pages and the like? I did many things for Vice magazine. They kept calling me trolling. Back in the day, it was a compliment in 2012 when I've done gonzo journalism. It's a fine line between gonzo journalism when you like penetrate events and you report on the buffet. I went, I did a Downtown Abbey piece and asked how come there's no Jews in the show? Or Asians in the show and they replied that back in the day it was like really funny but then people in Breitbart took it to a whole new level of actually changing the reality of what is reported. And do you think this has kind of changed the nature of the internet in a sense I mean is it now more acceptable to express views that would once be thought of as pretty socially unacceptable? Yeah. Is it is you're shaking your head? Uh, no, I think it's I think it's the opposite. So I think generally speaking, we've always had this um, issue, this balance between where it, free speech can take us and where where we have to limit it. And everyone who's a journalist knows there is a limit. There are libel rules. Free speech isn't unlimited. We know that. But I also think professionally, journalists have and always were trolls. I mean, that's what we are. <laughs> journalists are the acceptable face of trolling. We do it to public officials. We do it to people we want to hold to account. And as an industry, that's our raison d'etre. Has it got better or worse? I think it's got worse because actually now we have this... Um, extremely sort of over-sensitized uh, community that wants to create these safe spaces and protect themselves from anything they don't like. Now, we Being used to... triggered. Yeah, exactly. And I think in a well-functioning democracy, uh, free speech is understood where the limits lie and that within those limits, we can say everything that we want to as long as we respect people whilst we're doing it. But often the reality is very different from that. That sounds all great and good, but to moderate a comments thread online is a huge undertaking for every media organisation. And it's just, often it's not possible to keep completely on top of it. They should choose a troll to moderate the comment section. <laughs> One honorary troll. The free market solution. The free market solution, right. I think mm -hmm. you're right, John, though, in a sense in that there's an element where trolls are kind of truth tellers, and that's the kind of the journalistic acceptable face of it as you said Izzy but there's also trolling that's very there's a very ugly side to it and now there's a kind of alt-right side to it yeah is, and I guess that's the side thing. which is really taken off or tried delete the keyboard <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I wonder I mean Nimrod do you consider yourself to be a troll like you said that it used to be a kind of flattering term would you would you now like every time I unfollow someone on Twitter I tweet to them sorry for unfollowing you to make it clear that they've been unfollowed. 
there's a question, what do you need to actually tweet or post on Instagram to get arrested? And trolls all, always push the boundary on that. I don't think that's bad. I mean, I... I used to be more sensitive to it than I am now because um, so having written about quite sort of emotive subjects like Bitcoin or whatever, uh, I've been a victim of trolling myself. And what I've found generally is that if you let them bother you, it bothers you. But really, just turn it off and suppressing what do you them. Mean, turn it off how? Well, just turn off your Twitter or just ignore it. Well, Twitter's it. done that recently, haven't they? Like, mute, you mean? Well, <clears throat> mute it or just ignore it. I mean, don't let it get to you. It's like if someone's saying bad names to you, you can mm. let it get to you or you don't. And I think this is So not like, block them, just Yeah, not mute. block them. So I used to block them, but I've mm. stopped blocking them because I think actually it's not just about what they're saying. It's the context in which they're saying it, where you happen to be when you get that content um, through to your brain. And also I think one of the biggest problems of trolling on the internet is that because it's all done remotely, we haven't got the um, opportunity to see these subtle triggers in our faces which help to ease mm. comments and help us have a bit more humanity when we speak. We've well, created to those... be nasty in a sense when you yeah. can't see the person, you can't see the expression of the person. Yeah. Who Whereas you're there's a real evolutionary sort of purpose to having these sort of emotional facial expressions because it helps ease people into a sort of way of dealing with each other that's more palatable. Like, like muting your feelings <laughs> or unfollowing your heart. What do you two think about all of the new kind of anti-troll tools that are coming out at the moment? Google's just launched an artificial intelligence tool that tries to identify abusive comments online. The tool's called Perspective. And it's being used by the New York Times, The Economist right now. Nimrod, do you think you'll be able to find a way around it? And also, do you think that's a good thing? People recently blocked me, like William Shatner blocked me, uh, <laughs> Pierce Morgan. And then I have this funny thing I do, like a screen grab who's blocking me now. I just think people should be open about who blocks them, who they unfollow. Because Twitter is a public sphere, yeah. ultimately, isn't it? Another option is to go to the more optimistic social medias like Snapchat or Instagram, where people are not that cynical. And you can follow Politico and the FT on Instagram and get much less offended. Izzy, how about you? Do you think these tools are so, a good thing or so unnecessary? I, I think it could be a public sphere, but I think the more we use these tools, the less of a public sphere it becomes, and that's very dangerous. So as a journalist who believes in free speech, I think that's very dangerous, and I think it's very dangerous as soon as we start like, so giving the power... So the idea the that power, we're sort of modifying these too yeah, much is dangerous. Yeah. I think that as soon as we start giving... AI is the power to determine what is uh, below or above the line in terms of acceptable commentary is the moment we open the door to censorship and all sorts of uh, abuse of power. So yeah. um, as long as you're allowed on Twitter, you should be allowed to say anything. Yeah. If you're blocked on Twitter like Milo or Martin Shkreli, so then you're not there. So either you're there or not. Do you think as well... Um it will feed into the problem even more because one thing that trolls enjoy, even kind of nice ones who just do it for fun, are how empowering these platforms have been. You know, it's so different from the traditional model where, say, a newspaper or a media site says what they want and then there's no, you know, back and forth with their readers and public. So do you think mm -hmm. it could almost like exacerbate the problem? It'll just piss, piss people off a hell of a lot more. I think actually what will happen is the cost of all this moderation is going <laughs> to go exponential. And uh, I mean, Twitter doesn't make any money. Yeah, they as lose it money. Stands. Yeah, Twitter loses so money. So the more of these measures they put in, even if it's AI, AI still needs programmers. It still needs, you know, you still need an appeals system. And that has to be, uh, there has to be a default human in that system. So if you. That's something Facebook's been struggling with recently as well. Yeah. So you can't automate this stuff because fundamentally you need a human to make these decisions because of the subtlety of the expressions involved. Yeah, I think even with perspective, this new tool that you mentioned, John, effectively what it does
does is just kind of filter comments and then a human actually has to look yeah, through exactly. the list. So it yeah. just makes the list that you have to look it's through like a little when, bit shorter. When you're a troll who writes fake news, you need to be a good fake news writer also. People think machines do fake news. And you never know what is fake news today until the Kremlin denies it. And exactly. And so this idea that we can prevent the gaming of the system is just naive. It's, it, it takes us towards a totalitarian kind of mindset, in my opinion. No, I completely agree. I mean, at the same time, though, I think if a system like Twitter has been gamed so much that actually Twitter's starting to get this kind of toxicity around all this toxic brand, people are leaving Twitter in their droves or celebrities are are sort of doing their own Instagram, but getting someone else to man their Twitter account because they just don't want to be there. I mean, do you think Twitter has an image problem about in this way? Twitter has already become an Instagram, like a members club for the verified. Yes, exactly. So that's a very good point because the the experience we as like highly followed people get is very different to the ad- average user. But I also think um, in terms of people leaving, I mean, this is just society. This is how society works. Look at the real world. We also gather around like-minded people. This is nothing new. This is like you either get on with people you have you share their views or you don't if you don't like being surrounded with people who think differently to you you tend to orientate towards different groups you start political parties or whatever so what's happening in twitter i just think mimics real life so number do you yeah. think do you think people are oversensitive about about trolling and i'm going to throw an example at you so last night we were with our friend who is a photographer and you helped him with his wikipedia page mm-hmm. and you added this whole entry about who his best friends are and he was quite annoyed about that i found it yeah. funny but he was a bit annoyed about that right? he told me he's not big enough to be trolled on wikipedia <laughs> people always assume they're not famous enough to be trolled i like editing best friends to like famous people like uh, the owner of the firehouse and the chateau mamo andre balash so i edited he's known to interact with me warren buffett uh, Uma Furman, and I think it's like a, a very unique. So you, you edit all these people's pages. Yeah, and when I edit Wikipedia, I do typos because then other Wikipedia editors cannot resist fixing my typos, <laughs> and then the edit stays forever. When you think about it, <laughs> I love it. None of this is new, mm-hmm. but I love it. I love it. Yeah, and Wikipedia, you have a level of trolling. If you have a hundred edits or more, you're allowed to do more things on Wikipedia, like nominate people for deletion. Your vote counts more in deletion. So there are tiers. So it's kind of like a troll hierarchy. Yeah. So what, what level are you at now? I like to open new accounts all the time. <laughs> but one account, I have 150 edits. I go to different coffee shops. Our Wi-Fi is blocked from edits <laughs> in our home, sadly. So I go to different coffee shops for different... Ideas. Have you actually had any contact with Wikipedia? I met the founder, Jimmy Wales. And actually, I asked him, why is the page of the Gaza conflict, one of the conflicts, is longer than the Syrian civil war, even though Syrian civil war lasted a lot longer? And he said he can't control it, blah, blah, blah. But Wikipedia is so weirdly... I like deleting stuff. There's so many things on Wikipedia that shouldn't be there. <laughs> I completely agree. I mean, I think we have a massive Wikipedia problem anyway, in the sense that we can, you know, we think that this self-correcting, let's say, fair approach is not is always going to be foolproof. And the truth is, it isn't. And it's it's people like you, you highlight the absurdity of us believing all this stuff because if you can do it corporations can do it to to massage yeah. their profiles yeah, as much as yeah. Yeah. yeah it's full of wiki maniacs <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i think you know going back slightly i think a problem at the moment is that we are focusing on only bad trolls that all right and that is definitely not representative you think the, solu- of- the medicine for bad trolls is good trolls like I think the problem is, though, even Milo, you know, he calls himself a virtuous troll. Hmm. Some people do self-identify as trolls, and I think it's been seen that these people, when they take behavioural tests, are you know, disproportionately narcissists or whatever. But there is a problem. I think there's good trolling and there's kind of 
trolling that's playing the role of the court jester and the provocateur. But there is also, like I said, there's an ugly side to trolling. And that's the actress who was in Ghostbusters, Leslie Jones, that there was horrible kind of racist, misogynist abuse leveled at her. And I feel like... But was she right to go and complain to Twitter? Should she not, I don't know, do it on on her account and make her point? Uh, Yeah, I think there's a a real complexity here. And I I, am at the risk of being... Trigger. shunned and fired you know i, I think the mile <laughs> milo thing is is a little bit like it's gone over the top milo's a provocateur he doesn't classify himself as alt-right i mean that's he was the guy who wrote the original piece that tried to explain what the alt-right phenomenon was and he certainly can on that spectrum but alt-righteous yeah um <laughs> i mean he has but, some pretty questionable views yeah he's about, a pretty horrible um, guy, islam about feminism. well that's that's a very pejorative <laughs> view i'm sitting here as a neutral party who in the current sort of situation thinks you know what the internet is a forum for discourse you're not going to make them change their minds by shutting them down you're, you're going to influence them by example or by trying to reason with them it, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, we don't need to rewrite the laws that we have just because it's the internet. I mean, yeah. there are lots of very like sensible legislation about hate speech and stuff, and that that stuff still applies on Twitter. I think. I mean, I, I don't think we're suggesting it shouldn't. But it's I? no different to to how you would deal with these people in society. If like yeah. Milo comes along and he says something to you to your face that you don't like, you have two options. You can go. Right, I don't want to deal with this person, and you walk out. Yeah. Or you can confront him on his views and try to engage and, and reason yeah. and understand where he's coming from. Or you hug him so you don't have to look at his face. <laughs> yeah. He got fired from Brightboard. That's a big achievement. Yeah. But that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you really have to be doing something yeah. bad. Yeah. Like, who gets fired from Brightboard? Fine, but that's that's you know that's perfect. That's a that's a consequence. That's, that's a good that's solution. A, that's, that's a good solution. That's a consequence for like that's a real world consequence. Yeah. Real life implications. Vice sent me to make a film about the Sartorialist. He's a famous a famous fashion blogger. So I went to his book signing and I asked him, can I follow you? He said enthusiastically, yes, you can follow me. But then I said, no, follow you home. <laughs> and then he was very anxious suddenly. <laughs> okay, on that note, Izzy and Nimrod, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Next up, we're going to hear from Molly Goddard. She's a 28-year-old Londoner and one of the rising stars of the fashion world. After London Fashion Week, she came in to talk to us. Yeah, she won the Emerging British Talent Prize at the Fashion Awards last year. Lots of celebrities are wearing her dresses recently. She's kind of a toast of the fashion yeah, world. Yeah, Rihanna loves her. John and I, in the studio right now, have totally reinvented our look. If you could see us, the studio is full of gingham, frills. <laughs> I wish. Tulle. No. She's totally amazing and she tells us a bit about why she got into fashion, how she got into fashion and that for her, her label's really a family business. So here she is to tell us about her background and why she doesn't want to be labelled as a girly designer. I kind of have like a list of different people that I think of and they're all from kind of different warps of life, I suppose. I think about me and I think about my sister. I think about my mum. I think about Lynn Yeager, who's a brilliant woman who writes for US Vogue and wears incredible clothes and I always think of her. I think of Rihanna. I think of my granny. I think of my boyfriend sometimes. I think of whether he'd wear something. I try and think of everyone. (laughs) 
Rihanna wore a dress which was quite well she's worn a few dresses which is quite strange she wore one to the women's march I mean she's a great person to wear your clothes because she's very kind of creative and quite exciting in many ways and brave I don't think she kind of worries too much about what people think which is quite a good thing and there's a good story about she she wore kind of big green tulle dress and um I think she wore apparently she wore it to a party and didn't get photographed and was really annoyed that she hadn't got photographed or, or was kind of disappointed that no one had seen her in the dress so then she went to Starbucks the next morning and that in the dress and that's when she had a photo taken I tend to use as much fabric as I possibly can in some of the dresses we did this season. I still haven't figured out how much fabric it had in it, but it had double the width that we realised. So the gathering was actually 10 metres, went into 30 centimetres. And we use a smocking machine. It's kind of the best way of gathering. You can gather things so incredibly densely, which you can't do any other way. Often kind of my dresses are about fitting as much fabric in as possible, which sounds kind of ugly but it's always my favourite thing to do. You create these kind of enormous silhouettes. They are girly and I am girly but I'm not, I don't think they should be defined by that and I don't think because you wear them you are then girly. I think it's kind of about, I think the way we sell the clothes is often with not as a kind of full look. But I've always encouraged people to kind of buy a, like this, a sheer tulle dress and put it over whatever they wear. And I think the way we style it with my sister is that it's with jeans and trainers and it's not like you suddenly have this head-to-toe look that's kind of like so full-on. It's very much kind of should fit in with who you are and what you naturally wear. And maybe that's kind of what's exciting about it, I suppose. I'm quite opposed to the fairy tale aesthetic, although it is, I can't be annoyed that that's what people say because there is a lot of pink and there is a lot of sheer and frills and it is girly in the basic sense. But then I think they're actually quite kind of boxy shapes and they're not, they're not my idea of girly in many ways because there's a, almost an ugliness to them because they're so over the top, some of the dresses. I think you're bound to be put in that kind of bracket of like fairy-like dresses, but it does annoy me I kind of because I'm not like that really I, I think and I think there's a kind of actually the opposite and a definitely quite a kind of strength to the dresses in the way that you can wear them and feel kind of relaxed and not dressed up I think men's clothes are incredibly boring so I think if I was a boy I'd be wearing women's clothes and I think kind of it is a big thing, and I think it is a really important thing that there are kind of gender-neutral clothes, and 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 that you can kind of wear whatever you want. And I've, I think I've always, I think I've always felt that. I never had a uniform at school. I mean, I loved wearing clothes, and I think, and also I think growing up, my mum dressed me and my sister in really amazing clothes. It was just when I was allowed to dress myself, they all went a bit wrong. <laughs> and I wore velour tracksuits and... No, not velour, actually, just tracksuits. Before that, I think my mum made us lots of dresses and were kind of gingham and with pink rickrack and she put me in smock dresses and, and trainers and I'd cover it in mud or, you know, things like that, which is kind of what 
I think is a big influence. Like the photos of me in those dresses, I, I, I quite, I love seeing. I used to dress my sister up quite a lot. I remember making her kind of dresses out of sheets and jewellery out of tinfoil. And then I'd make her pose and I'd take photos of her because she was very funny to take photos of. I always looked at Vogue and when I did my GCSEs, I did textiles because I knew I wanted to do fashion because I loved Dior and I loved Galliano and I loved... I think I even knew that when I was doing my GCSEs, so I kind of... I don't think I realised that at the time, but I realise now that I always knew that that was what I wanted to do. I guess when I started, it was just me totally by myself. I didn't have a studio. I made everything in my kitchen and just worked for like two months straight, 8am till midnight, just making all the clothes for production. And then found a studio and then got New Gen, which is the British Fashion Council support programme for young designers. So they give you some money to contribute towards the show and they give you a place to show. But at the time, I didn't have any team. And I guess with, I think with most fashion things, you don't ever, it's not like starting a business where you sit down and you think, I want to start a sandwich making business. What do I need to start it? You just suddenly start and you don't have any, you don't have any time to think about what you might need. So it's always been a bit of a kind of trial and error process. And my boyfriend, worked in an art gallery so he was quite he'd done sales before and kind of freeze and stuff so he knew a bit about that side of things and he's very good at kind of communicating my sister's a cut is a stylist so she styled all the shows and then I needed someone to help me with set design and special projects for shops and stuff so my and my mum had just left her job as an art teacher and she used to do styling like before she had me and and is very, very resourceful. So I got her on board. And now she's needs some help. So my dad's kind of paused on what he did, which was graphic design, and has started helping her out. I like working with family because you, you kind of cut out the middle man and, like, all the kind of crap that you have to deal with with people you don't really know very well. And we're pretty straight to the point. We don't spend every minute together, and it's quite professional the way we all work. My sister Alice does the casting. She finds these people that you just would never... That, if I'm honest, I would never probably notice. We kind of get people to come in and we meet them. It's a lot to do with kind of their personality and I often think of someone's, like, too confident. It actually is a bit off-putting sometimes. It's It kind of depends, and also it depends on the show we're doing, like where, how that girl is going to kind of fit in with the with the feeling. So whether it's kind of a bit of a moody teenager feeling or we're going for kind of slightly more grown-up confident girls it's as much to do with kind of personality as looks and I think we're never looking for a uniformed look we have quite diverse models I didn't have enough money to get professional models and I loved using my friends and girls who kind of had you know you got to know through the casting process and the fitting process and so knowing them you then knew kind of how confident they were or how shy they were the idea of having them shoved in a room and just having to stand still made me feel really nervous so I we've always kind of thought oh we have to have something for them to actually do and enjoy so the first thing we did was a life drawing class and we had George who was our naked life model and all the girls drew him and that worked brilliantly and I think that's kind of what 
made people almost notice what we were doing in a way and got everyone quite excited because no one had ever seen that before. So then we did a sandwich making factory and all the girls made sandwiches. The kind of way women or people wear their clothes throughout their life, you know, when you're dressed as a kid and how that kind of looks and till when you suddenly become quite confident and choose your own clothes or become very confident and feel like you want to wear something totally ridiculous. And then kind of full circle. I liked the idea that I could create a, a scene where all those people could be in the same space. I guess like a parents' dinner party is that, you know, those kind of parties that you get invited to at Christmas time normally and you don't really know what to expect. You don't know if it's going to be like everyone's sitting down or everyone's dancing or everyone's dressed up or everyone's casual. And so it was that idea that there's kind of school kids and old ladies and babies and everyone's in the same room. We showed this season at Tape Modern in the tanks, which was amazing. So really kind of big, round, concrete, beautiful room. Having kind of baguettes and butter and Coca-Cola and wine is not too typical to a fashion show, but I think it was... I'd like to think people have a slightly warped idea of actual fashion shows and, you know, models do eat. And it wasn't trying to make a statement, I would say. It was just, you know, my favourite things to eat, which is bread and butter. (laughs) and red wine. (laughs) Okay, that's it for this week's show. Next week we'll be talking to the comedian and actor Nish Kumar. Everything Else is produced by Chika Ayres. We've been Griselda Murray-Brown and John Sonia. Our music is composed and produced by Fatum. Please get in touch with us on Twitter via at FT Life and Arts or email us at everythingelse at ft.com. You can listen to all our episodes of Everything Else in the usual places, including iTunes, Stitcher and Acast, as well as at ft.com slash everythingelse. <laughs>